Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. To find out more about us, visit highway.com.au. I get to open the Bible tonight. That's really, that's really cool. I take that very seriously. If you're the type that likes following an actual Bible, Genesis 1. It's going to be the easiest place to ever turn to. It's going to be the very first page. We're going to look at this. Um, on, your, on your way out, um, we have our table set up out there, um, as always. Now, not as always. It does, it, it's not going to take up the whole room out there. We only brought what we did new this year. And the reason we did this was to give people more space um, in the foyer. And so we have a 12-part series on the book of Revelation out there. Um, the reason I did that was because I just, I, I just, frankly, got embarrassed by the stuff people were saying about the book of Revelation on the Internet. And I just thought, my goodness. And so the, the way to handle that is just to present a better narrative instead of fighting about it. Just present a better narrative. And so um, if you're interested in the book of Revelation, it's, it's about everything I know about it. It's out there. It's a 12-part series. Um, we also have a series on faith and uncertainty. It's seven parts. And then during the COVID lockdowns, um, I was interviewed by pastors all over Queensland and um, some really smart people, people like, you know, Caleb Slater, you know, and, um, and, 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 and people like uh, Dustin Bell and Nathan Bean and um, Tony Sari and uh, Rob Buckingham and people like this. And so by the time they were done with all of that, um, we had like 750 minutes worth of Q&A in a dialogue with very intelligent people. And we put it all into a thing called conversations. And so you can um, get that as well. Now, the reason we have that out there is because we make a lot of money from it. And, and the reason we do that is because we live with an unapologetic conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So 100% of what we've made from that for well over a decade now, um, we've given to the poor and the afflicted. Namely, we have three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out, uh, out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats, right? We can play our part. So you can come in there. Everything's available in video and audio in USB form. Um, only thing I would ask is that if you do not intend to get anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time. If you do, if you say, before I leave tonight, I'm going to grab something. If you could grab that first, um, because uh, Taylor and Robin are here, and, um, and I don't want them to have to be here for an entire hour if it could happen in 15 minutes. I want to treat them how I would want to be treated. So if you don't want anything, God bless. If you do want something, I would just ask that you would, you would buy first and chat second. That would be awesome. So the order after the service is buy first and, and then chat second. That would be, that'd be great. You can, help us, uh, you, can, you can help us along there. So I want to talk to you tonight about God. I figured that's a good enough topic, right? Because, and it's very important that we understand some concepts around this. Anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? What I wanted to do this weekend was to reimagine what a Christ-centered community should look like. And, and so this morning we talked about a Christ-centered community is one that is participating with Christ to transition from fence-based ministry to well-based ministry. That, that, that Jesus quit asking the question, are you worthy, a long time ago, and he simply asked the question, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Jesus focused on, on loving more, not sinning less. Jesus focused on creating an atmosphere where nothing had to be hidden instead of an atmosphere where everything needs to be fixed. Jesus focused on direction, not distance. Jesus wanted to create a culture of teachability, humility, responsibility, and a passion for the infinite possibilities of our world. That was this morning in 60 seconds. And so we talked about how as a Christ-centered community, we need to be people who build deeper wells instead of erect higher fences. 
And so I want to continue with that tonight by talking about God. Because when we say God, that actually doesn't matter. I'm talking about the English word G-O-D. What matters is our dominant image of how that word works. Words matter less than how we picture words functioning in our head. So one person could say God, Jesus, Bible, Scripture, truth, and have a certain dominant image of what that looks like. And another person can say God, Jesus, Bible, Scripture, truth, and have a completely different dominant image of what that looks like. And their life will reflect whatever that dominant image of what they feel like God looks like living out. As the great G.K. Beale said, we become what we worship. The, the, the psalmist said it in Psalm 135. He says, when you build God in your own image, you become what you worship. In, in other words, whatever our dominant images of God are. So when I say God, whatever that dominant image is, when I say Jesus, whatever that dominant image is, that gets stamped into like the highest ideal of what we're trying to do. So if we think God is a single white dude on a throne looking to choose who's in and out, us and them, looking to judge things, then that's how we'll justify operating in our world. But if we see God as a perfect symbiotic relationship between three acting as one, creating a, a perfect community of love that prefers the other person, then that will then be reflected in how we live our life. And so when we talk about the nature of anything, you want to look at the verbs, not the nouns. So, so, when, so when, when, when the Bible says God is love, that actually matters less until you start reading what does love do? How does love operate in our world? And that creates dominant images in, in our mind. If, if, if the Bible says God is mercy, fine. But that matters less until you see how Jesus operated with mercy. And it's like, okay, that's what that looks like lived out. And so I want to examine the first verb ever used attributed to God in the whole of Scripture. And I want to sort of recapture the beauty of this image. Because I think it really matters to what we're talking about today. It says this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. So the first verb attributed to God in anywhere in scripture is that God is a creator. Now, once again, that doesn't matter as much as how we picture that word working. So if you hear the word creator and you're trying to think, well, are we trying to make the Bible a science book now? No, no, no. That would be boring and ridiculous. What we're trying to do is examine what the word creator actually operates like. And so what we find is that God is a creator. The first verb ever att attached to God is that he is a creator. If we're made in the image of God, then we can exercise our influence in our world by being creators ourselves. And, and, but let's look at what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth had a problem. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In other words, God is engaging in something and it's not going well. It actually, you would expect it to say, God created the heavens and the earth, and because God got involved in it, it was perfect really quickly. That's not what happened at all. It actually says God created the heavens and the earth, and what he found was is that he was engaging a story of void and darkness and formlessness. The, the Hebrew there is actually pretty comical. The Hebrew there is the earth was tohu vabohu, which is just so cool. It says God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu vabohu. It, it literally, and the earth was crazy, and that craziness invaded your house. In other words, you, there's no escaping this craziness, the tohu vabohu. In other words, what you find in the first three verses of the scripture is that God engages the darkness, engages the disrepair, engages the broken story, not to judge it, 
not to criticize it and not to banish it, but to reorder it in order to make a better story. Here's what you find from Genesis 1 from the beginning, is that God does not judge the disorder and the disrepair and the craziness, nor does he banish it, nor does he sit above it and criticize it. Rather, God is the one engaging the broken story, not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to reorder it in order to make a better story. And he doesn't seem to panic about it. Look at his response to it. So the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. The, the, the word there is rafesh, which is relax. Like God faced all this chaos and he relaxed. He didn't panic. Like there's, there's nothing creative about being a faceless plonker behind a, a computer screen criticizing everything that's going on in the world. That's not what God does in our world. But, but people who do that, if you look at it close enough, you look at their primary image of God and their primary image of God is, is that God is looking to judge. God is looking to criticize. God is looking to destroy. No, no, that's not what you find in Genesis 1. What you find is that God is willing to engage broken stories, not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to reorder it in order to make a better story. This is the problem with the narrative. I was told this when I was a kid and I'm not mad at them. I know what they were trying to do. This is what they said. Shane. God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. And the idea is, is that if you're sinning, God is going to abandon you. They, they thought it was some weird way to motivate people not to sin, okay? So God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. But the problem with that is, that is just empirically and observably not true. It seems like all God does is engage darkness, disorder, disrepair, and sinful things, not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to engage the broken story in order to make a better story. Like God is engaged in me, God is engaged with you, God's engaged with the world. It seems like all he's doing since the beginning is engaging broken stories, not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to reorder it in order to make a better story. If somebody says to me, what's the purpose of Highway Church in Brisbane? What's the point? You can't, and don't try not to use religious language. Okay, I would say one of the purposes of Highway Church is to be a place where people can have meaningful experiences with God in such a way that the presence of God engages their story no matter how broken it is. And they know they're not shamed. They know they're not judged. They know they're not criticized. But God is engaging that story in order to make a better narrative. It's sort of like this. If a three-year-old drew you a picture and said, mommy, daddy, auntie, uncle, I drew you a picture. Well, unless they're really gifted, that picture is going to be terrible, right? It's going to be an awful picture. You've never seen a great picture by a three-year-old, right? So the three-year-old, but, but, but come on now, all over Brisbane, there is awful pictures on refrigerators everywhere, right? Right? And the kid says, I, mommy, daddy, auntie, uncle, nana, papa, whatever they call you, I, I, I drew you a picture. Well, unless they're gifted, it's not going to be very good. But what do you do? Do you look at the picture and go, that's awful. Come back when you learn how to draw, little girl. No, you do not. Why? Because you have a soul, right? So, so what do you do with that broken picture? You go, oh, wow, wow. I reckon that's the best picture I've ever seen. That is truly amazing. And then you might go, what is it? Right? And they go, it's a windmill. And you go, well, I reckon that's the best windmill. I reckon I've never seen a windmill that good. You don't even see a windmill in it, right? It's, it's unintelligible lines. It's tohu va bohu, right? 
And then what if the kid says, what if the kid hands you the marker or the pencil, whatever, and says, hey, you draw. Well, what do you do? Do you throw away their broken picture, get a brand new piece of paper and draw a perfect windmill and go, that's how it's done. Come back when it looks like this. No, you do not. What do you do? You engage their broken story. You might even put your hand over the top of theirs and you might use their hand to draw a better picture. And then what do you do? Do you sign your name at the bottom to make sure the whole world knows it was actually you that no? You hand the better picture back to the three-year-old and you consent to them as to whether they're going to give you credit or take the credit themselves. And it doesn't matter because you actually participated in their broken story in order to make a better picture. That's exactly what Jesus did for the world. Just what God was doing in Genesis 1. Engaging the brokenness, not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to engage that story in order to make a better story. For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to engage the broken story of the world in order to make a better narrative. Now, when that becomes our primary image of God, then that then dictates how we operate in a Christ-centered community in our world. A Christ-centered community operates as creators, as influencers who are not trying to judge the disorder or banish the darkness or even criticize it, but rather engage the broken narrative, facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes in order to make a better story. Let, let's see if we can put some language around this. As influencers, we're called to be creators. Creators don't avoid disorder. They engage disorder with order. Creators don't avoid chaos. They engage chaos with new creation. See, creators understand that everything belongs. So we don't banish the disorder. We reorder it in order to make a better story. And again, in Genesis 1, I think we're being confronted in this scripture of whether we're going to be a fence-based ministry or a well-based church. Are we going to be somebody consumed with someone's worth and all the disorder and let's name all the sins and let's try to sin less? That doesn't help anybody. What helps people is when we engage the disorder, not to banish it, not to judge it, not to criticize it, but in order to engage it, in order to make a better story. Now, the question is, is how does God do this? And what you see in Genesis 1 is at least three things that God does to engage the disorder, not and the darkness and the disrepair and the chaos, not to judge it, not to banish it, but to make a better story, to engage chaos with new creation, to engage disorder with order, to, to, to engage the darkness with light. This is what you see him do. You see him, one, you see him operating with intentional vision. So God sees the solution and is systemic, in executing that vision. He sees the gaping hole, he creates a solution and he engages it with a better story. Now, how, how do we operate with that here now today? I, I say a couple ways. One is that our yes must be clear. For Highway Church to be the kind of church it can be, the yes must be clear. Look, clarity is everything in leadership. You could be clearly a lunatic and get followers as long as you're clear, right? But the, the yes must be clear. It must, be, it must be a clear yes. This is what we're called to do. Otherwise, what will happen is, is we'll default to a horrible filter system, which is, is it right or wrong? Well, is it right or wrong is a terrible filter. Because there's, there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise. They're not useful. They're not actually a part of our yes. And actually, we should never forget that. It's the first lie ever recorded in the Bible. It was evidently told by a talking snake. Listen, when a talking snake tells a lie, pay attention. And that lie was, is that you can gain life by mastering right and wrong, good and evil. No, you cannot. 
Because the best question is not, is this right or wrong? The best question is, is this life or death? Is this wise or not? Is this useful or not? So, so our, our yes must be clear. Let, let's say it this way. Our yes must be the driving force of all of our no responses. See, people struggle, good-hearted people struggle with whether if I have to say no, is that a mature no or is it a selfish no? And if you've never struggled with that at all, you, you might be a sociopath, right? Like the idea that I, I, I have to say no, but am I saying no because I'm selfish or am I saying no because I'm mature? Now, here's one of the ways to tell that. One of the ways to tell if your no is mature or not is, is your no clearly attached to a yes? If, you, if, if your no is clearly attached to a yes, then it's a mature no. If it's not clearly attached to a yes, then you need, you need to check it out. Let's say it this way. One yes requires a hundred no responses. One yes, to be, to be a yes person on forgiveness means I must be a no person on grudges. To be a yes person on fitness means I must be a no person on habitually overeating. To, to, be, a, to be a yes person on financial peace means I must be a no person on frivolous spending, right? But the no response is never enough energy in and of itself. The no has to be attached to a yes for it to have the energy to get traction to change our lives. Every life-changing thing is a yes response that leads to a no response, not a no response on its own. In, in other words, you don't have to intend to fail. You just have to have no intention and failure will be a part of your story. And that's true of anything. You can name anything. Like you don't have to intend to be unfit. You just have to have no fitness plan and unfitness will overtake you right? You don't have to intend to be broke. Nobody wakes up intending to be broke. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what? I want to make horrible financial decisions. This is going to cost me years of momentum. Nobody, nobody does that. But are there people who do that? Yes. Is it because they intended to? No. It's, be, it's because the path that you're on determines where you go, not the intention of your heart. But, but if, you, if you have intent, you don't have to intend to be broke. You just have to have no financial plan. You have to have no clear yes that determines what you must say no to financially, right? In the Proverbs, it says it this way. Where there's no vision, people perish. In Hebrew, it says it this way. I love it. I love this is a bit more poetic. It says, where there's no vision, people cast off restraint. In other words, if your yes isn't clear, you have no idea what to say no to. And that's a problem for life. That what, the, the issue is not mastering the no's. For goodness sake, that would be boring. Like if Christianity is only defined by what we say no to, we might have the most boring movement on the earth. Like if, if, if a good-hearted atheist came in here right now and said, listen, um, I'm an atheist. I don't want to make any bones about that. I don't want to be deceptive. But, but I, I'm, I'm kind and I'm authentic. And I'm actually genuinely curious. Would somebody be willing to have a cup of coffee with me and tell me what Jesus has brought to your life? Like what value does Jesus bring to your life? If somebody asked that question in that tone, would we wanna have a cup of coffee with that person? Of course we would. We'd also want to vote onto who does that, right? You, you wanna send the smart person out there. You don't wanna send the person whose eye twitches and you, know, you, you just like, you know, no, no, no. You just send the intelligent person, right? And so, so what, if, what if the atheist said, okay, tell me quick, what, what has Jesus brought to your life? If we frame it around the nose, it's pretty boring pretty quickly. Like if we said, okay, okay, in Christianity, bro, you're not gonna believe this. In Christianity, we don't kill each other. Well, the atheist would be like, yo, we, athe that's not a thing for us either, right? <laughs> like, atheists don't kill people, right? Murderers kill people, 
right? Oh, okay, okay, so, okay. So, okay, in Christianity, we don't take each other's things. We say no to stealing, right? Well, the atheist would be like, I'm glad because we don't do that either. Right? Oh, okay. Okay, in Christianity, we don't sleep with each other's spouses. It's like a thing, right? Well, the atheist would be like, well, it's not a thing in atheism either. Actually, we sleep with each other's spouses at about the same rate y'all do. What are you, like, what are you talking about? If, 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 we, if we make it solely about the no responses, then although the no's are important, it's an uncompelling way to present Christianity. Christianity is best expressed in the yes responses. Like we have meaningful experiences with God, not in a way to believe in God more, but to be so moved with what God has done engaging our broken story that we can't help but engage everybody's broken story if they'll consent to it. And not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to engage it in order to make a better narrative. Now that is a bit more interesting. So, so a couple of questions about that. Are we clear in what we want our organization to look like? Not are we right or wrong, but are we clear? Is our yes clear? Because if our yes is clear, then the no's sort of fall into place. If I have to say yes to that, I must say no to that. If I say yes to being well-based, then I have to say no to any fence that makes it harder to get to God. We got, we got to say no to that. Not because all fences aren't important, but because we, we have chosen to say yes to this. That this yes means we have to say no to hierarchies. That, that at Highway Church, there, there's, we, we don't have the spiritual, the super spiritual, and the ridiculously spiritual. No, we're, we're like all in this broken story together, submitting and consenting every day by saying our next yes to God and allowing God to engage our story in order to make a better narrative. Maybe here's one way to ask it. Is there alignment between our questions and our stated values? Here's just basic social science, okay? Here's what the study shows. Is that when there's alignment between the questions we ask and the statements we make, whether that's in a family, a business, a ministry, a church, whatever the case may be. When there's alignment between what we say is important and what we ask, um, then uh, trust goes up, anxiety goes down, confidence increases, right? But, because here's the thing, right? I have a master's degree in clinical psychology, okay? I don't practice, but I, I have my credential in it, right? And it's, it, you can learn this pretty quickly just by common sense. Pay, very, pay less attention to what people say and more attention to what people ask. Because anybody can lie on a statement. Anybody. But you have to be a psychopath to be able to lie with your question. Right? And so what the studies show is people sort of know that intuitively. And so when there's alignment between what we say is important and the questions we ask, then confidence goes up, trust goes up, anxiety decreases. I'll give you an example. So let's say, let's say you have a third grader and let's say he's like an A-type personality, like he's the kind of third grader that sort of has anxiety about getting a 98 instead of a 100, right? And he's, and, and he's in the dining room and he's stressing over the exam. So he's got, a, he's got a mathematics exam and he is stressing over, does he know the math, right? And, and you could see him stressing and you could tell this isn't the kid that you have to kick him in the butt all the time to get him to open a book. This is like the kid that's like, oh man, what if I get a 98 instead of a hundred, right? And so you're a good mom or dad and you kind of look in and you're concerned with his stress, you know? And so you go and sit down next to him and you try to comfort him. You say, hey buddy, don't worry about that exam. All I want you to do is do your best right? Well, that's a statement, correct? Well, the next day is where the rubber meets the road. So you pick him up from school. He comes in from school, he gets in the car. Now the question you ask is going to tell the whole story. So if he gets in the car and you say, hey bud, how'd the test go? Did you do your best? 
then the question you ask and the statement you make are the same thing. Anxiety goes down, trust goes up, confidence increases. But if he gets in the car and you say, hey, buddy, how'd it go? What grade did you make? Then the question you ask and the story you told are telling two different values. Anxiety goes up, confidence goes down, trust decreases. That one of the ways that we can increase confidence and increase trust and lower anxiety, whatever we're leading, whether it's our family, our ministry, our church or whatever, is to do the hard work and make sure that the questions we're asking and the stories we're telling are telling the same story. How does God do it in Genesis 1? He engages the disorder, the darkness, the chaos, not to judge it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to reorder it in order to make a better story. How does he do it? He makes sure his yes is clear. It's intentional vision. He engages it with clear yeses, and those yeses determine what the no's must be. Let's, let's say it this way. He does it with intentional words. There's, is there alignment between our vision and the words we allow to be spoken? The issue is almost never right or wrong. We always think we're right at the time we say it. Like no one goes, you know what? I know I'm wrong about this, but I'm gonna say it anyway, unless you're sort of like a maniac, right? It's almost never right or wrong. It's what is wise and useful. Is what I'm speaking in this moment, is it wise and is it useful? In the last 30 days, what has dominated our confessions? One of the things that you see in Genesis 1 that should move us, not for more belief, but for more action is, wait a minute, that when God engages the disorder, the disrepair, and the chaos, he doesn't judge it, banish it, or criticize it, but he's intentional that the words that he's using are meeting a certain need. It's, it's complementing the yes. So what you see in Genesis 1 is that his yes is clear, which makes the no even clearer. And when he engages the yes... Then the words that he spoke in were disciplined, and our confessions must be disciplined. So the first thing you see is intentional vision. The second thing you see is intentional words. The third thing you see is intentional rest. So there's intentional vision, there's intentional words, there's intentional rest. What you find in Genesis 1 is that there's a six-in-one rhythm built into creating. Now, what can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn from it. And I can tell you this is just true psychologically. Is it like if, you, if you're like a total scientist... You can prove this, right? Too much engagement in the darkness, disorder, and disrepair leads to white noise and confusion. Too little engagement with the world around us leads to boredom and depression, right? So a lot of times what people call depression, it actually, it, it, okay, it is depression, but it's caused by boredom. It's not actually caused by a medical problem, right? And so what you find in Genesis 1 is that God knew when to engage and when to disengage, because too much engagement in the world around us, too much of it causes white noise and confusion. This is why, this is true all the time, but especially in the COVID-19 thing, right? That, tell, tell me I'm not the only one in the room that had to draw appropriate boundaries around how much news we would watch, correct? Why? Because too much engagement, too, it's, it's white noise, it's confusing, it's actually, it's actually anxiety provoking. And actually another thing that causes anxiety is not being choosy and disciplined about only listening to reputable sources, right? This is, the, this is the problem with the internet. And don't get me wrong, I love the internet. The internet brought us Netflix and Stan and movies on demand. And I can watch all my American sport in Australia. Come get you some. I'm a big internet fan. But the problem with the internet is the other side of it. I mean, 25 years ago, if you had a question about medicine, who did you have to ask? 
a doctor, someone that went to school for seven years, had a four-year supervised practicum, and has been doing this for a living for years and years and years. Now you can be Melissa, the leader of the preschool mother's group from Logan, given your vitriolic opinion about something medical. And it can go viral, right? And that causes anxiety. See, what, what we find in Genesis 1 is that God knew exactly when to engage and actually that it's appropriate at times to disengage. Th th think of it like a song. Our life is like music, which by the way, you have some of the best music in Australia right here, right? These guys are talented, but here's what I know. Here's what I know about these guys. You can have the best singer in Australia standing there and you might very well have that. You can have the best guitar player in Australia standing there. You can have the best keyboard player behind a baby grand piano if you want. You can have the best bass player and none of that matters if the drummer's awful, right? There's no such thing as a musician that's good enough to overcome a bad drummer. It's, it, it's, it's just, and we've, and we've all been in church long enough to see that happen where everybody's playing the right notes in the right key, but the drummer's about a 16th of a beat off, right? And there's this awkward, <laughs> and here's what has to happen. You have to stop the song and start over. Why? Because when the song, it could be right notes, and, right, and it could be right notes and right key, but if it's in the wrong rhythm, the wrong rhythm butchers the song. And what you find in Genesis 1 is that God mastered the art of engagement and disengagement. And, and, and so do we. You also see that in Christ, by the way. One of my favorite scriptures is in Mark 5, where it says Jesus spends all night casting demons out of people, right? Because that's really, you know, energizing. And he said that he, he knew after spending all night with the demon possessed, he knew that the next day was going to be worse. The crowd was only going to get bigger. So before the sun came up, he snuck off to a solitary place to get away from the crowd. And when the sun came up and people could see, the crowd was huge. And Peter knew like where Jesus' spot was. And so Peter goes and finds him. And if you look at it without bias, Peter rebukes Jesus. And he's like, what are you doing, bro? Don't you know everybody's looking for you? And Jesus says, really? Is everybody waiting on me? then let us go somewhere else. In other words, if everybody's waiting on me, I've got to disengage from that for a bit. Why? Because God knew in Genesis 1 and the God revealed in Christ knew that too much engagement is too much white noise and confusion. Too little engagement leads to boredom. Can you imagine a song where it was all on all the time? They, they, I, they, they do it sometimes here. It's called a crash bang. It's where you transition from a fast song to another fast song, right? And it's, it's just, it's probably eight seconds to let you know this song's over and we're fixing to start the next one. And it's just everybody's playing everything all at once. And it's pretty cool for eight seconds. But imagine if a crash bang went for a whole minute. Be hard to listen to. 90 seconds, be really hard to listen to. At some point it'd be torture because too much engagement is, is, is white noise and it's confusion. But you could, could you equally imagine a song with not enough notes? If there's too much rests in the music, It'd be like, all on is too much, but songs that just, you guys know, there are some songs, there are some Christian worship songs that are good, but honestly, it takes them eight minutes to get to the crescendo, right? And you're standing there going, we are six minutes away from this. This song has entirely too much rest in it, right? Right? Why? Because too much engagement is white noise and confusion, but equally too little engagement is boredom and depression. And here's the thing, right? Here's what COVID has done to Australia and the world. Is it forced a break? It forced a rest. 
And it sort of exposed a lie. Like when, if you fly over the, the Pacific Ocean on Qantas, the, the Qantas magazine tell, you, will have a picture of a 60-year-old Australian man and his 60-year-old wife. And the ideal, it's a, this is a financial services magazine, like a, 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 a wealth manager. Help us, help us build your ideal retirement. And the idea is there's this two 60-year-old Australians and they have a camper and they're driving around Australia, Right? Now, to me, I've been around Australia. That sounds like zero fun, right? And, and the same ad in the American magazine has a yacht, right? But there's, there are these images. But the ideal is, is that to the Australian ideal, I get asked, that the number one question I get asked in Australia is, mate, mate, when do you take holidays, mate? When do you get a break? So there's this ideal that says, if I could get to the point where I could just do nothing, that would be living, right? Well, what COVID did is it exposed that. And it forced doing nothing on all of Australia. And now it's like, okay, that did, that did not deliver what it promised. S- sitting around all day doing nothing is not what it's cracked up to be. And so, and so what's happening in this season, and I think this is really important, is that because of the COVID season, this is the time where we actually need more engagement, not less engagement. We've had that moment of rest and now we need to engage and we need to rebuild the rhythm in our life. We need to add some more notes. We need to be passionate about the infinite possibilities God has for our world. What do we find in Genesis 1 is that God's a creator. What's that mean? It means he engages the disorder, not to judge it, not to banish it, not to criticize it, but to engage it in order to make a better story. And that's what he did in your life. That's what he did in my life. And as leaders of a Christ Center community in Brisbane, here's what we're called to do. We're called to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes by participating with God's activity in their story. Not to judge it, not anything that sounds like judgment or criticizing or banishing or hierarchying or, oh, this, that, we're this and they're that. And any us and them that has no place in the church of Jesus Christ anymore. Not one. Why? Because we say yes to being a well-based church instead of a fence-based church. And that requires us to engage broken stories with intentional vision, intentional words, and intentional rest. Now, good sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's wrestle with a few questions. Are the people we're leading frustrated by the gap between what we say is important and the questions we ask? Maybe people's frustration is not with what we're actually saying. It's that what we're saying and then what we ask sound like two different things. And it's, and it's just the energy to, to actually discipline ourselves to make the questions we ask and the stories we tell us the same story. Because how can we help them decrease their anxiety? In our organization, church, ministry, family, have we been clear about what we value? Is our yes clear and do they understand the yes? Number four, are we too compromising with our words and confessions? Do our words create order or disorder? Not are they right or wrong, because we always think we're right at the time we say it. But whether is this wise, is this useful, does it create order or disorder? Number six, is my song out of rhythm? Not am I doing something wrong, but am I having too much engagement or actually too little engagement? Where have I not mastered the art of engagement and retreat? Engagement and rest. The last question, I want to just summarize the whole weekend with this. Am I a well digger? Or a fence maker? Am I a well digger? Fence makers engage darkness to criticize, judge, set themselves above it, not creators. 
Creators and well diggers engage darkness, disorder, and disrepair, not to judge, criticize, or banish, but to engage it in order to use our energy to make a better story. So, my brothers and sisters, may we be well diggers and not fence makers. May we be the creators. What does that mean? It means we, we go about intentionally engaging the disorder, engaging the chaos, engaging the disrepair. We engage the broken stories in order to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes with God, knowing that God is involved in all of our stories to make a better narrative. And when that's the primary image of God, it changes the way we engage in our world. I hope Jesus got bigger for you tonight. I hope the cross worked better. I hope the resurrection is central. I hope scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Until I see you next time, grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Thank you so much for that, Pastor Shane. Can we please give it up for him one more time?